Welcome to the Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. A reading from the book of Revelations, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And to the angels of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith, and service and patient endurance that your latter works exceeds the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto the sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulations, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will I know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learnt what some call this deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you will have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him will I give authority over nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. As we have earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the God. Not in any particular order, but we will put this as placeholders for us. We have about seven points to cover through. One of the greatest battles that I've been praying and battling is time. Try to keep it to time. But lo and behold, I have the longest letter to preach. So do pray that I would, I would keep it to what God wants us to truly hear as a church. There are seven points that we're looking at today. The city which is entangled with the world. The city that tolerates the world, which is nothing but tolerating sins. Period. The Lord sees it all, because He is an omniscient God and all-knowing. The evils that befall the church, which we need to be aware of. The character of the author himself, which is God, our correspondent. The true remnants, the ones that truly love God. And finally, a 
a food for thought for us to, to behold and beware of the leaven that can really penetrate the church and then applications of how we could therefore surrender and yield into the hands of our living God. You see, the city that was entangled with the world, Thyatira was about 40 miles from Pergamon, very quick insight into what this country is. Um, Thyatira was a flat city. It was not like the others which had elevated ascensions. They were natural fortresses, but this was flat. So it tells you that this city always used to come under attack. It used to be an outpost at the time of Seleucus, who was one of Alexander's generals, successors. And it always used to be left flattened, defeated, beaten, left flattened, until the Romans came and took over. It became a, a commercial thriving center, pretty much like Dubai that we are today. Very commercial. It was run by who we know today as guilds or labor unions. They had a very thriving purple dye industry. And I'm sure we can refer to um, Lydia from Theatira, right? I mean, she was, she was, in, she was dealing in purple dye. So there's a, a dye industry that thrived. And, the, and, the, and the, the funny part is this dye industry was controlled by these laborers and uh, these labor unions or guilds. And they had their own patron deities and gods that, that they had to bow to. And if, as, if, as a Christian, if you lived at that time, and if you were either working or you had businesses, you had to be a part of the guild. Otherwise, you would be left abandoned. So you can imagine the pressure the theater was under. It was not a city which was famous for all the other cities which were famous for your pagan worship. That was not the case with Theatera. Theatera had a different problem. The commercial power was so strong that they controlled people, and Christians not excluded. And as we know from the Bible, you touch a man's livelihood, and he might just curse God to the face, and that was true of this particular city. We do not know who planted the church, but we do see that this must have definitely been planted through the works and ministry of Paul. In, and you see in Acts 19.10, the word of the Lord literally spread in Asia Minor, so we don't know who's placed that church. Um, Lydia could definitely have been instrumental as well in planting that church. Now, this is one of the longest letters, and it's written perhaps to one of the most insignificant cities. But the beauty about the Lord's letters, as we just saw all the, the strong tone, overtones of warning in the letter. But the beauty is it reeks in God's love and compassion. I'm not sure if you noticed it. Despite the greatest sin ever, which is to go against the church and teach false doctrines, the, the Bible says the Lord gives time for the prophetess to repent. And as a church, we know that we are benefactories and beneficiaries of that glorious love of our Savior Jesus Christ. It, close, it actually follows very close to Pergamum. Pergamum was compromised with sin and Satan and just allowed the world to come in and consume it. If the church at Pergamum was married to the world, Theatira was having children with it. It just deep dove into the things of Satan. We see that. They got into the deep things of Satan. It became so entrenched with the world that there was basically no difference between it and the world. Just breached everything, full-blown idolatry and sexual immorality everywhere. And we know the Bible says the desires of the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. Full-blown and in, in manifestation in this particular church. And the advice from the scripture is not for us to just abstain from the world. What the Bible says, be transformed by the renewal of the mind. Be transformed that you may just hate the world with perfect hate. It's to be a non-confirmist to the world, but yes, we have still been called to be the light of this world. We've been placed in this world to be the light. 
And the Bible clearly teaches we are not of the world, but we've been placed in the world that we may carry the light of Jesus Christ unto the ravens of people's hearts, and that's true. You see, the world assumed that there is no such thing as the way it should be. For them, the way it is, they believe, is what God has done. And that's true, isn't it? When you are in the world and you sit in a dark corner and you want to understand who God is, how, how can that even be possible? Let me give you an example of a gentleman whom I knew, and this is a right-hand example of a gentleman I knew. The man continued in a certain position in a company for eight to ten long years, the same position, no increase in salary, none whatsoever, but they retained him. And I was looking at his examining his life. Each time we had a meeting, he used to tell me about his experiences in the office. The organization expected him to cook the books, change things, make sure that you know, they avoid taxes. So they were asked to cook the, he was asked to cook the books. That was a norm. Everybody did it, and he was expected to do it, but he stood against it. He would never want to dabble with that kind of changes to the books. And every time he saw someone depressed in the office or people who needed help, the only thing he knew was to go and encourage, encourage them from the Word of God and to pray with them. The organization just did not want him there, but they didn't find enough grounds to throw him out, so he continued. And each time when we sat together, remember those good old days that, you know, we had the prosperity gospel, which was the in thing. Everybody spoke prosperity, and churches were all talking about faith and claim and name and claim. And here was a gentleman who was doing extremely poorly in his organization, didn't have enough of changes, no increment in salary, and our advice constantly was, I don't think you're doing what God wants you to do not knowing that he'd made a decision, though I am part of that organization, I will not do what the world wants me to do. How easy is it for us today? How easy is it that sometimes for our promotions and for our prosperity, we kind of compromise on what the organization demands rather than what the Lord demands out of us? How much of our growth today, wherever we are, has come by pleasing people than pleasing God? The Bible does say work as if you're working for the Lord, but that doesn't mean hard work alone. It means to be Christ-like in our workplaces. If you were to see any resistance in the world today, you don't have to stand up and, and proclaim that you're a Christian. If you just lived Christ-like in any place that God has placed you, you have instant resistance. It is like the word humility, which never exists. Have you seen any competency framework in any organization where they say, I want to see righteousness and gentleness and justice and humility? None of those parameters exist in the world. It's about aggression. And we are put in that particular place. And how easy is it for me to just be like the world instead of being what God wants me to be? This is the point I was trying to make. When the world sits in darkness and want to interpret a God who is full of light, they come up with the wrong image of who he is. And we have a church exactly at that time. Tolerating the world in our lives is tolerating sins, period. We don't even realize sometimes how the world kind of grows onto us. And you realize that it takes absolute divine intervention of our Christ and our Savior to shake us out of that sleep, that slumber, that numbness that we continue. Now the devil comes and places stairs along Along God's own children, we see the, the parable of the weeds. You know, the scientific world once said there are only two types, the XX chromosomes and XY, which is male and female. And this very scientific order today says there are more than six types. 
You've got XXX and XXXY and God knows how many. And they themselves claim that we have gone out of the created order. Today, you don't hear nurses coming out and say it's a boy and a girl. They might come back and say it is an it. While we should show love to those who are lost in this web of deception in this world, we truly are responsible and accountable that we counsel them from the true word of God, the truth which is double-edged. Churches have become transgender churches, and churches have kind of bent backwards and forwards today. We see the rest of the world. And for them, under the banner of love and, and tolerance, and acceptance have bent backwards and forwards. But where is the true church? The same thing, whether we look at the name and claim movement or any of the movements that you see, you find the, the, the barrier between the church and the world being breached so much that somebody who comes to the world and comes to the church finds no difference at all. You see, when a submarine is actually put down before putting down into the sea, they go through what is called a stress test. A stress test is they're put under pressure from different directions to check if the hinges hold, the doors hold, the exits hold, and not even moisture should be entering. And they have these devices that check if moisture enters. And if moisture enters, they bring it back and say, listen, this, is, this, this, this has to be decommissioned. It cannot go under the water. Until they fix the problem, it cannot go into the water. Not even a drop, not even moisture can be accommodated. How watertight are we as a church when it comes to sins? Theatre was a city without walls. They were always under attack. They used to be left in shambles and defend for themselves. And like Proverbs 25, 28, true that it is, and behold, it comes true here. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Such a gift from God for those who truly love him, isn't it? Self-control. That's the water tightness that God gives you and me as well the gift that God wants us to have. A little dabble here and a little indulgence there in the world is not the way God built his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How much are we allowed to dabble? How much of my conscience do I need to take back to my Lord's feet and pray and ask, O oh Lord, sort me out that I may have no scent of this world in me? The church of Theatra is a great representation how, how the church is absorbed by the world. What is that one attribute that you and I can think of that differentiates the church from the world? To be holy, to be undefiled for our Lord, to be truly separated, which ecclesia, the church, truly means that we are separated from the world and to live it. Matthew 18, 15 to 17, we know the instruction, the first instruction that the Lord gave was to warn it that it may not tolerate sins. Do not tolerate sins. See, one of the greatest challenges that as a church we face today is we have undervalued the glorious beauty and blessing of grace that God has given us. And, and Paul warns us of this. We may have taken the glory of God so lightly, and we've traded that off. The grace has been traded off for so many other things we have even assumed that finished works means that our God is so much full of compassion that he has kind of disrobed himself from being the just judge as well he is. 
You see from Romans 6, 14, 15, I'd like to read this. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Grace has never been the license for us to live the way we want to live. Grace has always been this, the freedom that we can know who God is and live according to how He wants us to live. Walk with Him so that His name may be glorified in our lives. That's what it is. But you know how our Lord is so full of mercy and compassion. He loves His church. He's very serious about His business of loving the church. He loves His church. Seldom do you find anyone dying for the unrighteous. And seldom do you find anyone dying for the righteous. But we have a Lord who died for the sins of man. And out of that precious blood that he shed was birthed the glorious church. How much of love more can we expect the Lord to show a church? Undeserving, made deserving. How can we even put that into our heads and make context and meaning out of it? Such is the glorious love of God. You can never measure the top, never measure the the bottom of his glorious love. In the midst of theater's situation... As insignificant as a church may sound, you see the Lord's praise for the church. The Lord says, I know your works. I know that you have love. I know you have faith. I also see your service and I also see your perseverance. You are showing it in demonstrable works. And in fact, your deeds now are greater than what you were in the beginning. And the Lord is holding that to the church. I know you are striving. I know you want to do what is right for me. It is becoming more consistent with them being the faithful church they are. However, he says, there are a few things that I hold against you. Let's talk about that. What were the evils that befell the church there? The wickedness of Jezebel. Now, going back to the Old Testament, perhaps the prophet's name was not Jezebel, but we understand the nature of Jezebel from the Old Testament. If you go back to 1 Kings 16, 31, you notice the parallel of how Jezebel caused Israel to wed a pagan god called Baal. He even got Ahab, she got Ahab to fall off his true worship of the true God to go into pagan sacrifices and pagan worship. See, the truth is when Ahab, the king of Israel, married Jezebel, he just married the world and paganism because she brought Baal worship into the nation. And that is exactly what Jezebel of Theatre did as well. She married the church to the world and brought in paganism, which resulted in two things that the Lord does not want to see in his church, sexual immorality and idolatry of any kind. Even if you were to harbor sexual immorality, how much of that do you think is acceptable to a holy God who turns his face the other side when his own son was on the cross taking all the sins of man upon himself. The instruction to Israel was to to never take strange wives and foreign wives that did not belong to Israel. And if you were to consider Solomon in the story and and his chamber of foreign wives or Ahab or, or Jezebel, the context and consequences seems to be the same. Marry them and you are married to the world of idolatry and deception. Subtlety and deception is a craft of the devil. I'm yet to see a greater evangelist than the devil himself.
He evangelizes the church. He brings deception in ways that we do not want. And sometimes our hearts are so numb because of this, this worldly perceptions we carry that we lose the resistance to resist it. False teachings, wrong doctrines, teachers, they're all instruments of deception in the hand of the devil. And the persuasiveness of the world is so strong, it sometimes numbs the heart that I cannot even feel an ounce of pain when I grieve the Holy Spirit. How do I numb my heart like this? And then you have this truth in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for everything that we need. We do not need anything outside of his glorious word. See, the truth is not about him. The truth is him. The life of Christ is demonstrably present in his word. And what the glorious spirit does is to take that glorious word of life and illuminate our, heart, our hearts. How glorious is that? How glorious is it that you, without even a pigment of your imagination, realize that I am treading along his glorious word. It's not my flesh that did that. It's the work of God. How much of glory we need to give him. How much of praise we need to give him. And this particular portion says they, get, they got into the depths of Satan. How difficult is that word for you to hear as a church today? They dabble with sins. What began as a small little teaching, an aberrant teaching, an, an errorful teaching in, in Pergamos became fully blown in Thyatira. The church tolerated all kinds of sins, apostasy and idolatry and communal feasts. And, and it soon was so overblown that they didn't even realize that what they were doing is wrong. Just taking it back to the placeholder, the submarine is watertight. There is no room for the world and the church as well. The church became so deeply involved in the things of Satan. Let's look at the author here, Christ himself. You see, the beauty about the letters is that you find the Lord's names and titles gloriously put there by the Spirit... The placeholders are all in Revelation 1. You'll find the word, the title, Son of Man, being used across all the letters. But when it comes to Theatera, there is suddenly a change of tone. He's the Son of God. It's not that humanity and niceness and tenderness of Christ that we see here. We see him being the judge of all judges. And how gloriously is that put together, the contrast of titles just from being son of man in Revelation 1, 14, 15. You see he now having eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like bronze. Christ is no longer designated as the son of man. The spirit does not make mistakes when he gives titles to the Lord in the Bible. His deity is emphasized. His judge, the role of his, him being the just judge is being emphasized. And here we don't see him coming to help. He's coming as God to judge them because of the sin that is present in the church. He's no longer the sympathetic savior. He becomes the judge here. And eyes like a flame of fire. There is nothing more penetrating than fire. There is nothing more consuming than fire is there. So much so that... Marvel Comics have copied 
this particular version and given it to a character, fictitious character called Superman. He can open his eyes and he can burn things which comes to his path. And he's called the savior of the world, so uncomfortably close to the title of our savior. But this is a God who's our judge. His eyes are all consuming. He can see through. He can penetrate the walls of the human heart. That brings in as much as I have such reverence and awe and love for God, it settles fear with all these attributes in my heart when I see that he is judge. He can see through my heart. Who can escape that? All-knowing, all-seeing God. And he's coming to judge them because of their sin. He can see the hidden things of the soul. There is no escape from this all-seeing, all-knowing eyes of God. And his feet like bronze. In Revelation 19, 15, we see he treads the winepress of the fierceness, this fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. I mean, this feat is to say that he's got such power to crush sin. These are not those befriending versions of our Lord and humanity. This is our Lord fully blown as judge. You see, when the church marries the world, the world is not upset, but Christ is. He's so upset, nothing triggers off more anger. We see in that language in the book of Revelation 2.23, he says he may even kill some. He's in serious business when it comes to purity and holiness of the church. The Lord is in serious business when it comes to the purity of the church. There's no change there. There is no escape from that. That is why the introduction of the world into the church is a devastating problem. And a church which so faithfully spends that time in studying the word, faithfully coming and preaching the word of God, is perhaps the most blessed place on planet earth. It's a frightening passage, by the way. Hebrews 10, 26, 31, one of the most frightening passages in the Bible. And this is how God looks at sin. If you notice, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation. This is from the book of Hebrews. And it shall devour the adversaries. There is no fire retardant in this world that can retard that fire of God. All-consuming fire. He that despised Moses' Lord died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much more sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant which he has sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God deals with sin even among his own people. He has provided us with the greatest escape hatch that we can think of, salvation in his name. He has provided us with the provision of forgiveness. That as a sinner, when we confess with all our heart and we cry out, he does restore joy and peace and righteousness back into our hearts. 
We enjoy his presence more. The more we get into this practice of confessing and getting our sins out of our life and getting our hearts straight with him. But there is always a remnant of sin that continues in our flesh. That seems to be the case with Theatra. They have fanned it. This is what deserves greater punishment. And if it is not enough that committing sins as a believer is a grievous sin, leading someone who is a believer into sin is even more heinous. And you notice the words in the Lord's own words in the book of Matthew when he says in graphic details, he says this and condensed it together. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, these little ones that the Bible is talking about, the theater, are not the physical children, but spiritual children. The, the offense and sin is so heinous that the Lord says it is better for the one to, to kind of hang a, a millstone around his neck and to be drowned. I mean, it is not the desire that the Lord would see anyone perish or to see anyone walking in the path of of perishing. But this imagery serves well for us to be reminded that immediate and drastic action is required as a believer when we dabble with this world and sinfulness. It's immediate and now. There is no question of postponing my presence in the, in, in the presence of our Lord when I've harbored sinfulness in my life. It is not the desire of the Lord at all for anyone to perish. Now just see what was the end to Jezebel. In the Old Testament, the Lord gives the prophetess of the church an opportunity to repent. He says, repent. But she refuses to repent. Let me tell you this. The Lord in His glorious word loves the church so much that He's about restoring the righteousness of the church in our lives at all times. That doesn't change. So much that the Lord deserves all the glory and reserves the power to chastise us and put us back in order. And those who arose and continued in the era, these false teachers, the Lord warns of them of severe judgment and declares death upon them. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's bring this to grip into our hearts as a church. The Lord is not concerned about the way we look as much as he's concerned about our heart, the attitude, the thoughts that we harbor in our hearts. He searches the mind and the hearts. The definition of telepathy for one of these psychic card readers is that I can read your mind. But the question is, can somebody search your mind? The Lord searches the mind. Every thought of mine is laid threadbare before him. The Old Testament refers to God as the one who searches the hearts. And Christ here is confirming his deity. He's saying, I search your hearts and minds too. He's a God whose eyes are like flames of fire. Nothing can be hidden. He will judge based on our deeds, the Bible says. Theatera, the Lord is telling Theatera, I will judge you by your deeds. Because what is out in your physical body and what you do and what the heart manifests, manifests are the thoughts that you harbor anyway. I will search them out. And how many verses in the scripture do we see him saying, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. 
Matthew 7, 16, we hear that. In Romans chapter 2 and verse number 6, we see, according to every man's deeds, he will be paid. I mean, this is not to suggest that salvation is by works. That's not the point we're trying to make. The point is, we are saved by grace. And if we are saved by grace, what we produce are the works that pleases God. And James so beautifully puts it, I will show my faith by works, because faith without works is dead. The Bible says we've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. Why? And the glorious truth is, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. But if you take out that equation, created in Christ Jesus, your good works means nothing. The Lord's judgment will fairly reflect each of our deeds. Now, what is also true from the Bible is, where does judgment begin? Make no mistake, the Bible says it begins with the household of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 17 carries that. It begins with me. I am accountable to God. As a church, it is important that we confront our lives before keeping the, the, the scripture as the only lens confront our sins and truly depend on this glorious God in love and mercy and compassion who says I'm more than willing to forgive you if only you came and opened your heart and confessed. A little leaven does leaven the whole lump. But in the midst of this, we still see some people there in Theatira who is holding on to the glorious teaching of God. You know, like the Berians who love to go back and search and, and know if the man has preached is right in the line of the Word of God and gone and, and reviewed and inspected. We did have those people who love the path of righteousness and purity. And what does the Lord tell them? The Lord provides them with comfort and encourages them to continue, continue steadfast and hold on to the truth you have. Treasure it in your heart that you may not sin against me until I come. To the prophet Malachi, the Lord says, They will be mine on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. There are people who have not known the deep things of Satan, and we see that in the Bible. See, the Bible does not allow us to go plumb the depths of Satan. As a church, we've been given this gracious gift to plumb the depths of God. How glorious is it that God allows you to literally go into the chambers of his heart and enjoy that fellowship with him? The Bible says that. When no eye has seen, no ear has heard, this is from 1 Corinthians 2, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. For those who love him. God has prepared this word. These things as revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And He brings it to us. All worldly wisdom, no, mat no matter how much of shame it has, no matter how much of substance you see, no matter how much of, of alluring it does, it just simply goes pale. It loses all its shine, all its so-called profound glory before the glory of God's wisdom. None of this helps. The truth is full of Him. The truth is about Him. The truth is Him. It is His life and the Word of God. That's why it's double-edged. 
the Spirit who is the mighty revealer, he continues to faithfully, faithfully bring the depths and riches of God's wisdom, the glorious truth, and he does this. It fixes that in our hearts. That we may not wander away from the glorious truth of God, that we may stay close to him at all times. And to all those who overcome the world, who are these people? The Bible says, for everyone who has been born of God, the trait of a true believer is not in the statement that I believe God, I've given my heart to God, but the demonstration of your life, which is worthy of Christ's calling, right? The book of Ephesians, so worthy of his calling. I want to live that life, be Christ-like. And that's an overcomer. And what is that sign of, and the genuine mark of an overcomer? He's steadfast in God. Yes, we slip. Yes, we fall. But the desires of the heart are always in one direction. May you give me grace enough that I may pick myself up in your strength and be restored in the same joy that you have given me, O oh Lord. The Bible promises to Theatra and to the whole church here, saying, if you are that steadfast overcomer, he gives you the authority over nations and rule them with iron rods. I mean, this promise is taken from Psalms 2, verses 7 to 9. This is the participation with Christ in the millennial kingdom. And then he says, you shall receive the morning star from Christ. He is the morning star. 2 Peter 1.17, he is the morning star and he will dawn in your heart. What does that mean? It simply means that the Lord's glory shall be reflected through us when we overcome this world. And finally, those who have a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Should we beware of this leaven? There are three leavens that you see that we need to be aware of. It's a word of caution. It's a word of warning as a church. Beware of three things. Worldly wisdom, worldly sorrow, and worldly friendship. Three things. This leavens the heart of the church. Worldly wisdom is the exact opposite of godly wisdom. It's a counterfeit that defies the truth of God and wants to pretend that as if this wisdom is greater than the wisdom of who God truly is. A man of God once said, if you see a believer who loves worldly wisdom and he flaunts it in this world, remember, he does not have an inch of a clue of what godly wisdom actually means. The time that we spend in the presence of God studying and meditating upon his word is what shapes our heart. The message of the cross, the Bible says, is foolishness to those with worldly wisdom who are perishing every day. And then Paul talks about worldly sorrow, which is exactly the opposite of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow comes from true repentance, right? Godly sorrow is how and what we feel over sin when we come to see sin exactly the way God sees it. That's godly sorrow for us. But this worldly wisdom or this worldly sorrow that we see, it stems from a love of self. 
Worldly love may arise circumstantially. Loss of friends, loss of property, disappointment, shame, disgrace. But the truth is, once these circumstances are all sorted out, there is no more worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow has no respite but this, that we go unto our Lord and Savior. He alone provides that freedom from that sorrow because he alone has paid the full penalty and diffused the church from the power of sin. And the clear distinction, as clear as day and night, between the friendship with God and that of the world, the Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. So when I'm signing up for worldly wisdom, I'm actually saying I'm armed and now I'm in the camp of the enemy against God. Our continued choice to dabble with, with the world is a mark that we are in the enemy's camp. Be aware of these three leavens in our lives. That our lives not be carried away and dictated by these three traits of worldly wisdom. I'd like to leave this encouragement with all our hearts. For a Christian or a true believer, the choice is very clear. To avoid worldliness, there is no choice because that's the gateway to sin. We must mature in faith, growing up in all the things that Christ longs us to have, not being spiritual infants which are tossed around by the lies of the world as we see in Ephesians. We must come to know the difference between the wisdom of our glorious God and the foolishness of worldly wisdom. And how do I even start this is only achieved, as we see in the Bible, one by careful and diligent study of the word and seeking God's wisdom in prayer. And we see that in the book of James 1.5. And enjoying our fellowship with mature believers who always encourage us to reject worldliness and embrace godliness. As a church, we do not have a choice between the world and the church. As a church, we have a sense of belonging. Sense of belonging to the one who loves our soul. The one who is a superintendent of the church. The church that is built upon none else but the foundation who is Christ Jesus himself, our cornerstone. It's a lesson that we can learn from Theatera. The lesson that we belong truly to Christ, that we have nothing to do with this world. Let our hearts rejoice in this truth and let our lives be led by this glorious yardstick, the scripture, the truth of God, that we may not dabble with what does not belong to him, but we may immerse in the joy of knowing our God. We may immerse ourselves in enjoying him in fellowship. We may immerse ourselves in loving him with all that we have. I want to leave you with this thought Take that moment to reflect on what God really wants you to take with you. That we may even gauge where we stand with God, our position with God. We may boldly introspect into our hearts and see where we have stored the filth of the world. Where we may have dabbled with it. And through the lens of the scripture, get rid of what we need to get rid of and enjoy and continue enjoying our presence, the presence of our Lord. We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, 
cc-dubai.com for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.